gather with people who at one time, and I'm going to say this to myself, couldn't say those words. But I also want to encourage you to keep hanging out with us because we are a group of people who've discovered the most amazing truth in Jesus Christ. Uh, we are people who, who would have died before we had said those words. And then Jesus helped us to die. So we're going to be born again. And so I just want to say that if that's where you are today, God be praised. So glad you're here. And uh, there's no shenanigans. We're just, uh, we're just trying to worship the king and talk about what that means for us. We've been talking uh, in this effort to kind of discover this Jesus that, that we've been following. We've kind of been talking through this series that's quite long now called Walking with Jesus. And it's this idea that Jesus is the kind of uh, fellow who gets his hands dirty. Uh, he's someone who, is, uh, who came to earth just to show us truth. And he wasn't the guy who was going to stand off in the, the you know, pie, what is it, the buy, pie in the sky, by and by, this kind of never, this ethereal, this kind of often distant. This is, Jesus is this kind of guy that you could get your hands on. You could touch him. You could squeeze him. You could poke him and see what he, how he responded. And we've been talking through this series, and uh, that's been an image that's come to mind. That Jesus is always getting his hands dirty. He's always getting his hands dirty. And that's our testimony as Christians, that Jesus got in there where all that dirt was. You know, we say, purify us from the inside out, man. That's how we want to be reformed, be transformed by Christ, by the Holy Spirit, by the work of God in our lives. Not from the outside in. Jesus had a big problem with that. Don't start working on the details. Start working on the holistic life change. But it's not our work to do. And I want to... I hope you've been walking with us as we follow these disciples who follow Jesus. Because one of the biggest things we see in Scripture, and we're going to find this coming up to Easter here, is that those who walked with him, those who touched him, those who heard the words with their own ears, you know, Steve, we always talk about what it must have been like to hear him actually preach, those people didn't get it. So don't beat yourself up if you're having trouble now, 2,000 years later. Don't beat yourself up if you're having a hard time getting your head around this. You see, Mary, we talked about, was mystified by her own son. And she didn't understand fully what was happening with Jesus, even though angels spoke to her, right? And she treasured these things up in her heart. And then we talked about Andrew and Simon, who were baffled at the wedding feast. They didn't know why Jesus made more wine for the party. But they kept following him. I want you to see that. It wasn't like they were saying, if you don't do this one more thing, we're not going to follow you. It was like they're like, man, that was weird. Let's follow him tomorrow and see what he does. You know? That's my experience is following Jesus. Whoa, that was crazy. What are you doing? I'll find out tomorrow, you know? Let's keep going. I want to encourage you in that walk with the disciples to keep going. Keep following Jesus. We talked about Jesus clung his disciples, the salty dogs, right out of their boat. And some of them right from their father's boat. Right out of the boat. He's where he got them from. He didn't go into the the holy temples. He didn't go into the upper stratification of society to pick his disciples. He went and he picked the most, we talked about this last week a little bit too, he picked the most mundane, ordinary, downtrodden, oppressed people. He picked these common people. You know why I think he did that? Because common people can talk to common people. You know? There's this, there's this tendency that as you, you get in the ministry, you start to lose touch. It's the worst thing about working at a Christian university. That's where I work right now, Christian college. Who are you going to witness to? 
We witness to each other. But he takes ordinary folks, and then he just changes their lives, and he puts them right back in that ordinary situation. And people start to go, man, what happened to you? And Peter says, always have an answer when someone asks. We talked about Jesus' healing touch. One of the most profound things we ask for God to touch from the inside out. I always say you can invite Jesus into your heart, you know, but be careful when you do because he's going to rearrange the furniture. You know what I'm saying? Like my life is upside down since I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm not going to lie to you about that. Upside down. Push things against the wall. I think he's ready for a party. He's making space. Someone this morning said he's emptying. He empties us so we might be filled. We've got so much junk in our lives. And he's shoving it out of the way because he has great work to do through us. And we have to trust that. And he would come into our lives <clears throat> excuse me, as one who had authority. He reached this idea. I keep stuck on this idea of how Jesus touched us with his hand when he healed people. It was this, this space right here, the space that he would grab you with and he would suddenly claim authority on your life. I think we have trouble with people like that, people who come up and seem to know things about us. And Jesus is the utmost, the foremost person who would know. We talk about how, you know, we only need to see ourselves. We say we're not hurting. We say we don't need healing. We say we don't need a savior. We've got it all figured out. We're only lying to ourselves. But Jesus can come in there and work in that honesty. Talk about Jesus being more than enough, and that's another theme we're going to keep on with the church. You know, this idea that Jesus gives us more than we need. And then last week, this idea of the Good Samaritan. Dale and I were talking before the service about how the Samaritans really were these people who were nothing. They were nobodies. And, and, and uh, I'm just going to point this out, Dale, because it was a genius. He said, you know, he really, this one, this one Samaritan changed the, the terminology of Samaritans for all time. You know, if this one Samaritan hadn't stopped, we probably wouldn't know what a Samaritan is. But you know what else? It was Jesus who identified that Samaritan. It was Jesus who said, look at this guy over here, the guy you guys think is worthless, the guy that can't do nothing right. See that guy? Guy worshiping false gods. See that guy? You know what he did? He did what you're supposed to be doing. See, we don't know about the salvation. Somebody told me that last week. What about the salvation of Samaritan? Man, I don't know, but if Jesus said he's doing good stuff, we should be paying attention, you know? I just want us not to be afraid to follow Jesus wherever he leads us and whatever the cost. Because Jesus, you see, is the greatest neighbor we ever had. He's the one that saw our pain and came down and spoke into our lives. He's the one that stopped and looked and drew near and bound us up. This is the Christ we've been following. And I guess one of the things that it seems with Jesus is that to, to him these things seem so obvious. These things that are so hard for the disciples and for us. There's times where he's going, what, what are you talking about? I love how the disciples are so disconnected in the scriptures, how they're so confused, how they're so far off the point, where Jesus is teaching one thing, and they're like, they're like listening, and they're like, hey, by the way, and they ask something totally ridiculous, because that's us sometimes. We're not listening to the king. See, Jesus believed that some of these things were so obvious, you might say they were as plain as the nose in your face. Did you ever hear that before? Well, that's as plain as a nose in your face. This one turn of phrase this week as I studied the scriptures really started to like 
open up this whole Pandora's box of like, what in the world is up with that kind of, you know what idioms are? That's an idiom. I didn't, I didn't never identify it as an idiom before. This idea that something you all say and you know what it means the minute you say it. It seems like to Jesus, this stuff was so obvious. It's as plain as the nose in your face. You know how plain that is? It's pretty plain. It's pretty straightforward. And he teaches these things. You know, there's, I was reading this article on CNN. There's this whole study of people's faces called personality, which is ridiculous, I think. I'm just going to say that. But it's this idea that you can tell everything about a person by the way they look. I want to read this quote from it. Personologists believe that the features on your face tell literally the inside story on the kind of person that you are. Oh, come on. Judging the book by the cover. That's an idiom too, by the way. Are you serious? I, what I really want to get to is those, those, those old rustic idioms that no one ever heard of, like uh, make as much noise as a truck full, truck full of turkeys or, you know. I, I want to throw those out once in a while. I'm trying to find some of those. Just use them. Uh, Jesus thought it was so obvious that he could just see through people. And this is the trouble because when we pray before Jesus and we don't admit where we are, we're only lying to ourselves and we can't be helped. We can't be healed. We can't receive him. We're deceiving ourselves. Jesus saw things in a way that we don't see them. And that's what today's story is about. Let's pray together. Father God, we, uh, we are here gathered again in your name. We're excited to be in your, your kingdom. We're excited to be worshiping you in this place today. We pray we worship you somewhere else tomorrow. We pray, Lord, that uh, in this time we've set aside that you would just open our hearts, that you would soften them, that you would open the word, that we would have wisdom by the Holy Spirit, that we would not uh, be of our own. We have no interest in hearing um, our own great thoughts, but we want to hear the greatest thoughts from you. We pray, Lord, that you would consecrate this time and have your way with it. And we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to read today from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Uh, you're going to need a Bible if you don't have one. There's a few of them sitting on the ends of some of the seats. We're going to read Mark chapter 12. I think there's a, uh, a reference so we can see it. 13 through 17. There we go. And I want to talk a little bit about context first. We always talk about the text being in a context. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. So if we look back, this is actually after the triumphal entry. This is going to be after some time that we're going to celebrate in a couple weeks. After this time that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. But, you know, we've been talking about this whole journey of Jesus and how people started out kind of watching him, and then people started hearing and believing him, and then people started following him, and then he started sending people out, and then all of a sudden people started getting uncomfortable with it, some of the people who were in authority and in power at the time, and then as, as you get to the end, there's this times of testing and times of trials, but this is the image here is Jesus is in the very center of Judaism. He's in the very center. He's at this very high and holy time. And he's coming to Jerusalem, um, fulfilling all prophecies, but no one can see it. You see, so we're okay if we don't. So we're going to read Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And it says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Right away we see a problem here with this text. And we're going to talk about a little bit how to look at, read your Bible a little bit, you know. Later they sent some of the Pharisees. Who are they? Does anyone know who they are? If you don't know, let's look it up. We're going to turn back to 
chapter 11, verse 27. Because it's always important to see who Jesus is talking to. Chapter 11, verse 27, this is what it says. It was right there on the same page for me. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking into the temple court, so here he is in, the, in this holy place, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. So these are the folks that it says that they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians. These are the guys who sent these two groups to talk to Jesus. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Who are those guys? I want to talk about that in a minute, right? The chief priests were those who were making sacrifices at the temple. These weren't just priests, because there were lots of priests. These, there weren't tons of priests. There were enough to make the sacrifice throw. And these were the upper echelon of priests. These were the priests of the priests. These were the guys in charge. These were the big head honchos, you can imagine. So that's one group who's interested in what Jesus is doing, so interested that they start to kind of send these little parties in, almost like raiding parties, to see if they can trip him up. The chief priests. The second group is the teachers of the law. I love the Greek word here because it's grammateus. Oh, you hear that? If you, if you look at it, it's just grammar. These folks are the scribes. They know the word. And when you say the word to, the, to this, this group of people, they, they mean the First Testament. They know it inside and out. They've been writing it for years. By the way, a great way to Bible study. If you want to spend some time dwelling on a text, just write it. Just write it out. You'd be amazed what you see when you write out a text. Not something I thought up. Someone showed, showed me one time, and I was just amazed by it. Take a few minutes and write that text out. But these guys had written that text and written that text and written that text and knew that text, and they knew it inside and out. And this is the second group who sent these two groups to talk to Jesus. The third is the elders. The elders, the Greek word here again is revealing. It's called presbyteros. Presbyteros. Sound familiar? Sounds like a presbyter, right? That's where we get the word presbyter from. It means the same thing as overseer or bishop. But in that time, it wasn't the modern context what we mean by presbyter. It was this idea of a member of the Sanhedrin council. These would be the ones that would be ruling over disputes. These would be the ones who had authority in the Jewish community. So these are the three groups, and I just want to talk about that a minute because it's all trapped in that one little word there, they. They sent them. And if you ever see a detail, stop a minute and go find out what that means because who sent these guys might really matter to the story. The thing I realized about these three groups and why they were so interested at this high holy time in this guy Jesus was because they all had something at stake. So you can imagine for these folks, if he's the Messiah, and no one has said that yet, no one but demons actually have said that yet, he, if he's the Messiah, if he's the fulfillment, things are going to change. And that's a big deal to them. And you can look at that both ways. Either they're being proactive and looking at it, or they're threatened, which is the way we'd all respond, I think. The human response is, my power is threatened. All three of these groups had something to lose with Jesus. And so they're all very concerned. Now, I don't want to gloss this over any, though, because if you read back, let's go back to chapter 12, verse uh, 13 again. If you read what it says, it says, Later they, those three, got, those three groups of men, sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And to catch him literally means to hunt. You see, they're on a hunt. And who's on a hunt? Well, you could say the Pharisees and the Herodians are on a hunt, but you know the Sanhedrin council's on a hunt, and the elders are on a hunt, the, the uh, scribes are on a hunt, the priests are on a hunt. They're hunting for Jesus. 
Who, who here hunts? Yeah, you guys hunt? Good. Don't you love it when you go out there into the woods with your gun at four in the morning? I don't hunt. And you wait in the dark until this beautiful creature of God comes up before you. And it's gorgeous. You all know if you've hunted. I have hunted, but I don't, I don't hunt because I don't know what I'm doing. But you're there, and you see that everything's gorgeous, and, 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 and then you look at that deer, and you just go, man, that's awesome. And you go home and tell your friends about it. Isn't that how you guys hunt? No. <laughs> These guys are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, you kill it, right? And then you, then you eat it, and then you stuff what's left and put it on the wall. You know, this is the way we hunt, especially if it's a good one. This is a good one. These folks were hunting for Jesus. You see, they weren't there to bask in his glory. They were out to kill him. Make no mistake about it. They wanted his head on a wall. This is what they were doing. I'm not, I'm not lamenting hunting in any way. I just want to say that that word literally means to hunt for an animal here. To catch him in his words. Now, there's other groups of people here then. There's these Pharisees and Herodians. This is all in verse 13 of this text. And what's interesting, if you look into this, this Herodian-Pharisee relationship, it's a long relationship, and it's complicated because there is, like, the Herodians are really complicated. It's a lineage thing, and it's about ruling and, and uh, people not trusting them. But the point is that they have a very long and convoluted story, and quite honestly, the Pharisees and Herodians didn't like each other. Now, there are texts that say that at some points the Pharisees received, like, um, favorable treatment from, the, from Herod, the Tetrarch, because he was so hated by other Jewish sects that, that he would give them favors to keep them in his good graces. And there was a lot of them. So this idea that it's like, they're not really friends. They're not on the same page. But maybe they have a relationship that's kind of, you know, uh, mutually beneficial in some ways. Pharisees, the name comes from parash in, the, in the, uh, Hebrew, which means to make distinct or separate. These guys, Pharisees, were clearly different. They were clearly set apart. They lived differently, they spoke differently, and they knew it. And they were not afraid to tell you they did that. They were not afraid to show you your errors. They were not afraid to, they, were, they would just decide things. They knew it. They knew what they were doing. And we kind of paint them with this broad brush. Oh, the Pharisees, don't be a Pharisee, right? And, and I think that's what Christ was saying to us. But yet, these guys were the kind of guys who would tell you like it is. Straight up. They've thought about it, they've studied it, and this is what we're doing. They were different. They were set apart. They were distinct. The Herodians were those who supported Herod, the Tetrarch, and maybe his or her family, Herod the Great. You see, the Herod the Tetrarch wasn't nearly as great as Herod the Great was. But Herod the Great was dead. And so the Herodians in the time of Jesus would have been these guys who knew the legacy, the dynasty of the Herod family. By the way, the same Herod family, uh, who, who the same Herod the Great was, the, Herod the Tetrarch was the one who had John put to death. All these guys are in the mix. But it's this idea that they were somehow in with this Roman rule thing. The, the Herod ruled on behalf of Rome. And so no one in the Jewish nation trusted him. But neither of them were fond of Jesus is the point. The Pharisees always were at odds with him. You see, they were always were at odds with Jesus. And Herod had killed John. This was so amazing to Herodians that, that there were some reports to Herod that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead because when they saw Jesus it reminded them of John the Baptist 
We talked about how that's kind of wild to me, how Jesus' ministry just kicks into high gear when John is beheaded. He has had enough, and he starts to preach about the kingdom of God. So there's this idea here that they were so, they saw this thread, and they didn't like this Jesus guy because they, they thought this might be the guy that came back to life that we killed before. Needless to say, they were all happy. They didn't care for him. Let's read on. So later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words, to trap him in his words, to hunt him. And they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now you see on the surface, let's read that again. It looks great. Teacher, they call him. Uh, Didasco, Didascalos, one who instructs rightly, one who teaches us wisdom. You're, you're right. They come to him. Again, this is the same way they did last week with the trap they set. They, they come to him. They say, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. We know. That means, and it's funny because all this is like negatives. Like, we know you're not dishonest. We know you're not a liar. We know you are of truth. All this is wrapped up. And when they say this, you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men, they say. Because you pay no attention to who they are. They mean you, they say to Jesus, you, look, you don't even turn your head to look at them. Because Jesus kind of had this way of doing his own thing. He was just kind of, he knew who he was. And he would walk through crowds. He would just do his thing. And people were kind of insulted. Why isn't he paying respect? Why isn't he paying attention? Don't he know that I'm in charge? Does he know that I'm in charge? But they say all these things that I would say are true. You pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. The journey, the path, the road to God, you teach absolutely in truth. All these things they said have been true. You agree? I mean, these aren't things that you would, but you know what's funny? Do you ever have somebody come up to you and like start to just kind of like pour on the love right away? You know, and then you start to get a little uneasy feeling. Maybe that's me being paranoid. I don't know. Sometimes you just go, what are you talking about? If it's way over the top, if it's way too much. And he knows who these guys are. And they come to him and they talk like this. Oh, teacher, you know. I don't want to be too sarcastic about it, but you know, we know you're a man of integrity. Okay. So here's the question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Verse 15 continues and says this. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he said. Bring a denarius to me, let me look at it. Right there, he knows their hypocrisy. Now, you know hypocrisy, what's that mean, hypocrisy? You have an idea? It's like you're kind of, uh, it's the biggest you know, criticism level against the church. Oh, a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of hypocrites. Let's not be hypocrites. You know, you know what a hypocrite is? It's like one who acts, acts, an actor, a thespian, if you will, Okay. It's, it's not so much that you're pretending about the things you do know. It's, pretend, it's, it's that you're reciting words here. These guys were saying empty words, almost like someone had put them in their mouth. Isn't that interesting? They weren't the words of the Pharisees or Herodians. Someone had said, hey, guys, come here. I got an idea. Go ask Jesus this question. Who, who is behind this? Who is the puppeteer putting words in their mouth? 
But they come and Jesus this, this right away knows it. They're being hypocrites. He senses the deception. He says, why are you trying to trap me? Again, it's the same word that we talked about last week with the, uh, the question about who's my neighbor. Why are you trying to trap me, tempt me? It's the same word used in James. It says God does not tempt. He's saying, don't do this. Why are you doing this to me? And he says to them, uh, get a denarius and let me look at it. And so they do. They bring a coin to him. And he asks them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Let me ask a question. Who has a dime today? Do you have a dime? I don't have a dime. Anybody? No? Chris is looking. Oh, there's money on the floor. All right. We'll get that later. You know what denarius? Denarius meant? There you go. You just look at it. You got that? Yeah. Here, I'll, I'll take yours, actually. Woo-hoo. Got paid. Oh, I'm just kidding. Denarius. Jesus says, just take that and bring it to me. And they do that. They bring that to him, a dime. It's worth 10. Dena means 10. Deca means 10. And so they bring this to him, and he looks at it. And these are the questions that he asks about that dime in their hands. He says, whose portrait is on it and whose inscription and they replied, Caesar's. And Jesus says to them and answer their question, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed. Now, this doesn't sound that complicated, right? He amazed the Pharisees and the Herodians by his answer. But you do see the trap, don't you? Because if they come to Jesus asking him, as a, as a member of an oppressed body of people who had to pay tribute taxes to this king that they didn't claim to be their king, and they say, do you pay taxes or not? Jesus doesn't answer the question. He asks the question. He says, bring me a coin. Whose picture is on it? Whose writing is on it? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, then give it to Caesar, right? And they're like, ah. And I'll tell you why, because see, he's out of it again. You see how he did that? He's out of it again. You're saying, what are you talking about? What does this imply, Jesus is saying? You know, we have hang-ups about money in churches, right? I want to talk about money in churches. What does this imply that Jesus says about money? Whose inscription is on it? Whose picture is on that dime you have in your pocket? Jesus implies that whoever made that coin can absolutely have it back. You see that? It, belong, it never belonged to you anyway. They can have it back. Give it back to the rightful owner. I have no problem with that. That's what Jesus says. He he implies that they have the right, as the maker of the money, to reclaim it at any time. He also implies that this coin only has value when you give it back. You know, our currency in the United States is, is unwritten by the federal government of the United States. It has value because of who the country is. You see? Actually, now, there was silver then. Now, there's nothing in there really of value anymore in the money that we all pass back and forth. But it has value because of who backs the money. And the last thing, and I got in trouble for saying this before, you see. But what were the Pharisees asking? You know what the Pharisees were asking? Or whoever was behind the puppeteering on this deal? Do we have to give our money back to them? I earned it. You know, don't we report to a higher authority? But what were they trying to hang on to? They were trying to hang on to this money. 
They were trying to hang on to the silver. They were trying to hang on to this ability to trade, this exchange, this value. Because what was the question? If I lose my money, what am I going to do? Isn't that the question? Jesus, what do we do without money? And Jesus says, God doesn't need money. I said that one time. I got in trouble. I said, God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. Afterwards, a trustee came to me. Not here, by the way. A trustee came to me and said, don't ever say that again. God don't need it. We, no, I'm just kidding. But there's this idea that we, when we ask these questions, they're loaded. There's a question behind the question. And the question is, we don't want to give this back to them. We've earned it. And Jesus says, you know what? It belongs to Herod. Give it back. Because the most powerful part of this interchange comes at the very end. And I want you to see that. That's puberty, by the way. I apologize. I want you to see it right here. He says, render unto God the things that belong to God. Now, let me ask you a question, church. What belongs to God? Everything. Well, that's a pretty bold answer. Yeah. Everything. Let me ask you another question the way Jesus said it here. Who bears God's image? Did you see Nolan this morning up here? See, that's a big deal about parenting. God has given us a lot to take care of. He goes beyond just this baby in a crib. These children that come into our lives, they bear the very image, the very likeness of God. Turn with me real quick, if you will. Genesis chapter 1. It's the very, very front of the book, so you don't need your table of contents for this. It's right here, verse 27. It says this. This is what the Bible says about what God did. God created man in his own image. That's his own likeness, his own reflection. This, this, he looks, man's mouth looks like God. In the image of God, he created him. And male and female, he created them. Every boy, every girl, Every person here was created in the image of God. You wonder why Jesus had a problem with people who were downtrodden? Because when he looked into the ditches of life, he didn't see people who were unworthy of love. He saw God. And we walk all over him, don't we? It's the very image and likeness of God is knit into every person who is alive. Everyone. And Jesus says to the Herodians and to the Pharisees and to you and I, give it back to who it belongs to and you bear the image of God. Return it to God. The second part of the question, whose inscription is on it? Whose inscription is on the coin? What does it say? Matt and I played with this this week a little bit. We looked, you know, you can still see denarii, denarius online. You can see images. They actually still exist. The money that Jesus probably handled, not the coin maybe, but the same money he handled, you can go see a picture of within 30 seconds of the internet. It's amazing. Here's the coin. You know what they used to say? Caesar, you know, Kaiser, you know. These, these ones who proclaimed themselves gods, who said they had authority, you see. They've written this all over it. I want you to turn with me. This will be a little harder to find. Jeremiah chapter 33. I think that's wrong. Chapter 31, verse 33. Chapter 31, verse 33. Turn there if you want to. This is what it says. This is 
the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. These are the days of Elijah, we sang earlier, right? These are the day of prophets. This is what he said to this prophet. He said, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds and I will write my law on their hearts. You see, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will any person teach his neighbor or man his brother saying, know the Lord, because everyone will know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Because I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. He is talking about a time when the word of truth will be written on your hearts. You will know who God is. And no one will have to tell you anymore. No one will have to explain this to you. This is the hardest thing because when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he writes stuff in your heart. Things come out of your mouth. And people have been a Christian a long time say, man, how did you know that? And you go, I don't know. That's not very comfortable because we want to be able to explain to people that we're not crazy. We're not crazy. You know, what is going on? God is it's a time where he's revealing in our very soul. He's writing words in our heart. We bear the image. This is written to the church. I hope you hear that. When these people come to Jesus and they say, what should we do? He says, render unto God the things that are God's. If you are not in the church and you're giving nothing to God, that's exactly right. Does that make sense? Because if you, don't, if you can't say these words, if you can't believe these things, then you don't owe anything back to God. We see, God loves you just the same. God's writing those words in your heart. See, that's why I want you to keep coming around because God writes those in your heart. I don't have to convince you because God does the convincing. We just respond. Last thought here. For those of us who are in the church, the question becomes from Jesus' lips, what's your excuse? What are you so worried about? Tax time's coming, isn't it? Oh, Uncle Sam's going to get my money. Guess what? It's not your money. Uncle Sam gave it to you. But you know what's even more insulting than that? God wants me to give something back. Yeah, well, what did you do to earn it? He just gave it to you. God doesn't want your money, you see. God wants everything. Everything. Because when things return to God, they begin to have value. Things start to fall in place with your life. You see, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they ultimately, and the elders, these three groups that set out at the very beginning of this book, they conspired against Jesus. By the end, Mark 15, they deliver him hands bound to his death. Ho, ho. You think Jesus won? No, 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 no. See, they got their wish. They killed him. And this is not good news. If you were a follower of Jesus, this is not good news. In Mark 15, it says they delivered him to Pilate to be killed. These aren't the stories we're used to hearing. It's the most ironic thing, maybe, as a Christian, that we celebrate the cross. Because with the disciples is where many of us are. When Jesus is betrayed into the hands, we think nothing good is going to come from this. 
This is all lost. Our king is going to die. Turn with me one last time. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Hebrews quotes that same passage from Isaiah, but right before, and I want to read this together. The author of the book of Hebrews says this, Day after day, every priest, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Every day, again and again, he orders the same sacrifices to be made, which can never take away sins. These priests are going to the altar, going to the altar, going to the altar, and it's all for nothing. It can take away no sins. But when this priest, again, when what priest? This priest is Jesus, the author of Hebrews. And when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus did this work once and for all. In every direction, he gave his life as an atonement for sins, for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of those who don't believe yet, for the sins of the children who aren't born yet. Jesus gave his life for all sins of all time, the writer of Hebrews says. And since that time, ah, listen to this, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. That image on your bulletin, if you look at the back really closely, there's a picture of the Caesar with his feet up on a stool. You see that? And I said to Matt, I said, you know what that is? You think that that didn't preach to these people at that time? Jesus will make all his enemies his footstool? They got it. They got the message. Read in 14. Because one sacrifice has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see, it's a process. Jesus gives a sacrifice that makes us holy. We don't earn this we just respond to it. We follow this Jesus who does different things every day. And he says, keep giving back what God has given you. If I can say one thing to you today, that's what I want to say. God has given you great things. Give them back. Give them back to God. I'm going to ask Matt and the worship team to come up. We always talk about this time of response what this looks like. How should I respond? And you know, for too long, for too long in the church, this response has been about men. It's been about us feeling good about ourselves. I want to tell you something. The leadership of this church prays and prays and prays and prays that you come to know Jesus Christ, but it is not for our benefit. We love to see it, but it's not for us. It's for you. Because when you come here with this kind of weird group of followers, we're not any different than you. I was the guy that couldn't see it. But Jesus knew I was a child of God. It was as plain as the nose of my face. And he said, come home, turn around, pay attention. That's all I want to say today. We're going to have a time of kind of reflecting on the word. I want you to respond right where you are. This is not about a show. This is about you and God and what he has brought you here today to do. And I pray today, Lord, that you would have your way in this place. Let's pray together. Father God, we have such a hard time letting go. We have a hard time. We think we own it. We think it belongs to us. We think we earned it. But God, I pray today that 
you would convict our souls that we've earned nothing, that everything we've experienced has been by your hand, that the image bestowed on us when we were knit together in our mother's womb was an image of God. I pray today, Lord, that we respond, that we come home, that we return to our creator and to say, here I am, here I am. May you get glory through the truth of your word. Amen.